everybody. This is Oscar Dahlm here with Matthew Knutson, and this is We Like Movies AFI Top 100 Countdown, number 75, In the Heat of the Night. And boy howdy, we got a special one for you because we have a very special guest. Matt, will you introduce our friend Ben Goff? I'm here with Ben Goff, a friend and colleague from the... uh school of film studies at columbia university uh ben and i met about a year ago and we're currently both working on our uh, thesis projects it's a very fast program it's only about 18 months yeah we'll be out of here by the turn of the year um but i thought of ben when this movie came up because uh, his project deals with the career of Sidney poitier and uh this just seemed like serendipitous timing he's the guy that i've wanted to talk to wanted to invite on this podcast for some time now and uh it just seemed like an opportunity not to be missed here's ben he's our Sidney poitier expert for this particular episode please don't put that title on me just yet <laughs> just in the same way that y'all only like movies and don't love movies i'm not going to be the Sidney poitier expert just yet like we're all just in this kind of a limbo phase right now with cinema ben is also uh very caucasian like you and i oscar so uh this is going to be our version of three white guys sitting around talking about uh the, the the black experience in the American South circa nineteen sixty seven. We are really good at this kind of stuff. Really getting deep into stuff we have no right talking about, but that's fine. Ben, can you just talk a little bit about what your your background is with uh, Poitiers and what sort of brought you to that as the as the subject of your your studies? Yeah, so I'm really drawn to Poitiers, uh, especially in his time period. Not only because I think Poitiers is a great actor, and I'm just really drawn to. Um, this sort of cool boil that he has at every uh, at every point in time, especially which we'll get into with in the heat of the night. Um, before 1967, Poitier was having to work with this emotional spectrum where he was always, at any given point in time, having to play it cool, but then also having to erupt at the end to teach white people a lesson, or just to teach, as we see in Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, teach his own African American parents a lesson um and so i'm just drawn to this idea that poitier has a larger emotional range than other actors do especially during this time um and so also during this time you have sort of the culmination of the social problem film after world war ii you've got gentlemen's agreement you've got best years of our lives and then of course across the atlantic you have the entire neorealist movement that you were able to sort of spread these social problem films across a large area. Um, You could talk about anti-Semitism, you could talk about socioeconomic issues, but Poitier had to carry the entire racial social problem film on his shoulders. So before we have In the Heat of the Night, you have 25 films from Poitier where he's basically having to carry the entire African-American stereotype on his shoulders. Basically what I've done with my thesis is I've found this TV movie called The Strolling Twenties, Um, which I'm using as a case study to show how Poitier moved from 1965's A Patch of Blue, which I argue is his last social problem film, into 1966's Strolling Twenties. And then we emerge on the other side with our case today with In the Heat of the Night, where Poitier is yelling at Rod Steiger throughout the film. Uh, He's slapping white people, which enters into the age of the black exploitation picture. Um, So really just kind of diving into that year and especially that TV movie to figure out how on earth did Poitier just finally say enough is enough, both with his studio contract and just with Hollywood in general. And 67 is especially significant because he made three films that year, right? To Sir With Love, 
in the heat of the night and uh, guess who's coming to dinner. At the end of that year, he was officially America's box office sweetheart. I mean, he was making the Crazy. most money that year. And then all of a sudden, which I don't know that we'll have time for today, he just disappears. Hmm. Um, and he sort of directs his own movies and he has some other films in the 70s like Brother John and For Love of Ivy uh, in 1968. But he really did just make a conscious decision to leave the mainstream spotlight. But we won't have time for that today. Maybe maybe <laughs> another time. Well, yeah, we may just have to do a spinoff where we talk about Stir Crazy and Ghost Dad in the 80s, yes. right? Because <laughs> Uptown gets, Saturday Night. Yeah, and, his career gets bonkers in the 80s. Yeah. Maybe we'll do an all sneakers podcast one uh, day. I love sneakers. Oh, I yeah. It the the production of this movie, I, I guess I don't know a ton of the backstory. Obviously, Norman Jewison, big name, big time director. Uh, this movie's written by a guy named Sterling Siliphant, which is a fantastic name. And he, he seems like one of those sort of old school uh, movie studio workhorses. The guy's got like, I don't know, 50, 60, 70 credits. So it's not like he, uh, I don't know, he, he'd been doing a lot for a long time. But what, what struck me most upon rewatching this movie, and I, had, I hadn't seen it probably since high school or maybe early college. I mean, this is not a movie I've, I've, I've gone back to. Um, but for, for a movie that's so important and so significant, it is so straightforward and procedural and unpreachy. And I suspect that's part of the reason why it, it has been so significant because you're talking about how a lot of these you know social issue movies came to be around this time, but this movie maybe was a little bit different than the others. Is, is that sort of the case yeah i guess one of the biggest things about this film in relation to the other racial social problem films of the time is really how poitier's character is written so this siliphant he's he's a white guy obviously right uh sterling siliphant yeah yes. and how about the guy who wrote the book john ball well he wrote a lot of tibbs books so that's how we got famous it looks like so yeah i know that there was two sequels made after this but the the Tibbs character was that this was a franchise of books as well. Yes, it was a franchise of books. Okay, interesting. Uh, yeah, it looks like this guy's a white guy, as far as I can tell. I think it's important to kind of like look at what a kind of like simple, straightforward procedural film this is on its face, and how like resonant and relevant it is for like all these other reasons besides just the the pretty straightforward plotting of the film. It's actually kind of interesting. We're going to be talking about um, Silence of the Lambs next, which I just rewatched in preparation. And I think that's so interesting because that's considered to be a classic, certainly like, you know, a classic of the 90s at least and ranks higher than this film. But pretty much, I mean, it has all these things going for it, but it's actually a pretty darn simple little pot boiler of a, um, of a you know, serial killer thriller. And I feel like if you take all of kind of like the sociopolitical stuff out of In the Heat of the Night, it certainly doesn't resonate the way that it has, right? Like the, the, this movie has so much going for it beyond just what it signifies on paper. The, the time period, the racial stuff, the fact that they, you know, had to sh- shoot it north of the Mason-Dixon line, mm-hmm. couldn't actually shoot it in Mississippi. And yeah, the, the like where it sits in Poitier's filmography and what he represented at that point in the late 60s. Yeah, I mean, obviously the, the characterization is super important, just how they, how, yeah, Poitier's dignity and gravitas and how that plays off Steiger, who is just fantastic. I wouldn't call him a complex character, but there's there's depth there um, that's not necessarily in the script. Yeah, he won he won Best Actor. Poitier not even nominated, oddly mm-hmm. enough, which which I find kind of strange. I mean, Poitier had already won by this point, but it is yeah. crazy to me that that he wasn't even nominated for the film. 
Yeah, it wasn't nominated. Steiger was nominated in the Best Actor category, which was bizarre. Uh, it beat The Graduate for Best Picture. Dr. Doolittle nominated for Best Picture, but uh, Cool Hand Luke wasn't. 67 is really interesting. I mean, we talked, what did we talk about last time? We were talking about all the president's men and yeah. how like three out of five of those movies ended up, the movies nominated for Best Picture that year ended up on this list. This is another year where three of the five films nominated for Best Picture end up on the AFI Top 100 list. And you could even say four if you want to count Guess Who's Coming to Dinner being on the original list. So Dr. Doolittle is really a, a bit of an outlier there for sure. There's, a, I mean, obviously Mark Harris's Pictures at a Revolution is a great book about the 1967 Best Picture race. This is a fascinating story that he opens up with the introduction that says basically all four of those movies that are on AFI's list, their production budgets combined weren't even half of what Dr. Doolittle's production budget was. <laughs> so Dr. Doolittle basically bought its way into, into the Best Picture race, which, I mean, this is a plug that if you haven't read uh, Mark Harris's book, it's been it's fascinating and, and it's got a ton of great backstory on like Poitier that year and why 67 was such a great, great year for him. He was actually supposed to be in Dr. Doolittle playing this like... <laughs> Af- was. Yeah, this oh, like really? African tribal guide. Oh, God. Uh, but due to some contractual issue, I wish I could remember the name that he... It was this just super stereotypical racist African name. But yeah, Sammy Davis Jr. was actually supposed to play it. Hmm. Then he turned down the role and then uh, Poitier picked it up and then he turned it down and then that role was eventually written out of the movie. All right, so In the Heat of the Night comes out. It's obviously a pretty big hit right away. Like I, But I don't have a great feel for sort of the immediate and then later on sort of cultural ramifications here. Like, what, what was the reaction at the time? Was there a backlash? Did this sort of change the minds of former racists and so like what what actually was the effect of this movie on on the populace and the movie going general population yeah so there's this great story um in the heat of the night opens uh at two theaters in new york city the capitol theater and then the east uh 86th street cinema so once the film is released uh steiger and poitier actually would go and sit in on screenings at the capitol theater and they would go it's a it's a two-story theater and they would go sit on the balcony and basically they would just listen for the famous uh slap scene and they would play this game based on how many gasps they heard from white people in the audience and how many cheers they heard from african-americans in the audience then after the scene played they would just play this game of or how many of each race do you think were in the audience it was pretty evident at the time that this movie was unlike anything that they had seen before and like we're saying like the the procedural of just it's a very simple plot pretty simple thriller it feels just like a normal law and order episode almost yeah but in terms of like the social ramifications of like they call me mr tibbs we get we got the slap and then at the very end where we find out that there's this like rape abortion sort of storyline that's been happening and brewing those definitely were felt at the time the especially the slap really was felt it's so much so that Two years later, we start getting black exploitation movies, like with Shaft and with Cleopatra Jones and all the like. Those are studio movies. Um, so not only was it felt by the American audiences, but it was also felt by the studio that people really did want to see like black people getting angry on screen. Really, it really all culminates in that scene, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, that in the AFI Top 100 special. If you go back and, and rewatch that, uh, Lawrence, Fisher, Lawrence Fishburne refers to that as the slap heard around the world. And um, I think it's such an interesting scene because the Endicott 
character, can't remember the name of the actor. He's so Larry Gates. Thank you. He's so convivial, like he's so polite, and he's showing him around the greenhouse, and he's being very, he's being much more polite to him than any other white character has been up to this point in the movie, including Steiger, right? Yep. So yeah. it's really an interesting sort of misdirect that they're doing there in, in regards to the fact that he is, has a lot of deep-seated racism, and yet he's almost kind of like overcompensating up until he's not. Well, it's interesting to note Poitier's confidence in that scene. Um, not only with the slap, I mean, there's no time in between Larry Gates' slap and Poitier's slap, but also just with Poitier asking for a drink. That was that would have been huge to see Poitier kind of take charge of the screen as a character. James Baldwin's big beef with Poitier at the time was that he was this nonviolent, asexual, nothing going for it. Like he was a great actor, but they weren't writing roles that were really anything good for him. I mean, we think about Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, which was taken off of the list. Like, he's this Nobel Prize winning PhD candidate. Like, he had everything going for him. The kiss in the backseat of the cab at Guess Who's Coming to Dinner and it was this huge thing to see Poitier kissing somebody on screen. Like, that was massive. So to see Poitier kind of stroll into the the greenhouse and Steiger turns down a drink and Poitier makes a point to say, no, I do want something cold. Yeah. And, and, and I will get it. When you slap me, I'm going to slap you right back. That would have been huge to see on screen for audiences at the time. I was just thinking we should have, um, I should have bought some pantyhose to uh, put over the microphone for this episode because we're going to say Poitier about, you know, 85 <laughs> times over the next uh, 30 minutes. Uh, to say it's the best scene in the movie, I mean, it's certainly the most memorable scene in the movie, right? It's the most, it's the most significant. Like, it, it's boiling down everything that the movie is really trying to say all into one sequence. And I also love the fact that when he said, uh, the end of character says there was a time when I could have had you shot there's a reverse angle on Poitier and there's so many things you know he wants to say and there's so many things that he could have said and maybe there was takes where he did say something that they decided not to use but there's something so much more significant about the fact that he just says nothing and he just turns and leaves why make it worse at this point yeah. right yeah, yeah. it's interesting to note that after that scene they get out to the car and Raj Steiger is upset with Poitier, for, upset with Tibbs. I'll start using Tibbs instead of Poitier. <laughs> upset with Tibbs for, you know, slapping him. And Tibbs makes the comment that, hey, we need to, like, if you just give me a couple days, I'm going to arrest this guy. And it's strictly out of vengeance for slapping him, not because Tibbs knows that he's guilty. And so this is huge for Poitier. For Tibbs, um, it's huge for Sydney. <laughs> make you paranoid. Yeah, it, it's huge for Sydney at the time because he was able to be wrong. They wrote a character for him that was able to be wrong. Yeah, because he's he's certain that this is the guy. It's not. And there's something so nice about about the way that the movie just kind of like peppers in those motivations for why he would stick around. Because the conceit of the film is a little bit of a stretch, you know. Yes. Like the <laughs> the fact that the the very first scene where they're in the um, when they're in the sheriff's office and they call his chief back in Philadelphia, the fact that the chief would be like, "Why don't you stay down there and give me?" I don't know. It's a. It seems to be a little bit of a stretch. Maybe, maybe I'm. You know, maybe it's it's a different time. It was. You know, and the fact that this guy that Rod Steiger has never met basically like is outranking him, even though he's in a completely different state. I don't know. It, it it was a little bit of a stretch to me expositionally. But the movie does a pretty good job of just like just when you think it's like okay, it's about time he gets on a train. He's he needs to get out of here. Like this is not going anywhere. Right about that time, the movie gives you just a little something to make him stick around. Yeah. Which I appreciate it. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned earlier, it's it's like a uh, feels like a Law and Order episode, just the way the, the the clean, natural direction of it, and the plotting, and just the simplicity of it. And there's nothing wrong with a really good Law and Order <laughs> episode, right? It, it's fun, like it, it's kind of a breezy watch, even with sort of the, the subject matter at hand. And I was pretty 
impressed by that whole thing. It, it doesn't feel, I mean, it's obviously dated in its own way, but just, just sort of plot-wise, it, it, it does move along really well. And uh, just going back to Poitier's characters, Tibbs' characterization, Jesus. That, that is sort of what struck me most, um, is, is how real this guy is, how, how proud and confident and stubborn and kind of wrong and sort of salty this guy is in this situation. It, it did feel fairly real it did feel like he had a chip on his shoulder as as he as he obviously would looking back at the the time period 1967 and looking at those other movies on like that best picture list it still is i I would i would kind of want to read that book you're talking about ben it kind of still is surprising me that this movie ended up winning best picture i mean was there a pretty big groundswell of support was it sort of a I mean, the movie's great, obviously, but was there sort of symbolic effort, people understanding how, how important and significant just the subject matter was? Well, I think on one end, you have this idea of of the five movies, they kind of even themselves out. On one end, you have the safe bets studio system. You got Stanley Kramer. You've got Arthur Jacobs um, with Guess Who's Coming to Dinner and Dr. Doolittle. Um, Guess Who's Coming to Dinner really surprised me being on that first list because even at the time people kind of recognized that it was a dated movie in 1967 you have loving versus virginia which allows for interracial marriage legally um so to see it on the screen most of america had already joined that team um politically so those two movies are on one end of the spectrum then on the other end you have the graduate and bonnie and clyde which were got so many things that just american audiences were not used to and then in the middle you have in the heat of the night where Sidney poitier is not being too aggressive he's just slapping people he's not cursing anybody he's just saying i need you to address me by mr tibbs so it was huge for him but in terms of american cinema at the time it was just enough that the academy was able to say we're pushing things forward without pushing it too far forward but without staying behind as well too there's this great i can't remember who quoted it at the time but the best picture race was basically called the dragons versus the dragonflies and in the heat of the night was the one that was kind of left out of the situation so based on you know votes canceling each other out and you know however you want to talk about that there's this idea of sexuality in the graduate and guess who's coming to dinner but one is about this reserved nobel peace prize kissing in the back of the taxi cab sexuality versus the graduates horny mother sexuality (laughs) and then you've got you know the bonnie and clyde violent so it's like they all kind of even each other out and then all all of a sudden Sidney poitier just emerges from the group in the heat of the night which which seems to me that that would kind of be the most likely reasoning behind it that you know if you talk about like vote counting and things like that that in the heat of the night was probably the safest bet of all of them which is crazy to say out loud, but I, I, I like your reasoning there. <laughs> yeah, that actually does make sense, yeah. It's pretty rare for a movie star in a field of five to have more than one film that they're starring in, mm-hmm. nominated for Best Picture. You know, like nowadays we have 10. It's not quite, a, you know, still relatively rare. So I think, again, it's a, a testament to how high his star had climbed by that in, in that particular year. Mm-hmm. We'll get to The Graduate and Bonnie and Clyde, both of which rank higher as far as the AFI is concerned. But I think Ben and I determined that Guess Who's Coming to Dinner was 99 on the original list, right? So, yes. like you said, maybe hasn't aged very well. Was just kind of barely hanging on by its fingernails on that very first list. 67, such a watershed year, too. I just sort of, like, ran down a few of the films that I noticed. You mentioned Cool Hand Luke. The Dirty Dozen, Two for the Road, Camelot, Valley of the Dolls, the original comedic Casino Royale, uh, Don't Look Back, In Cold Blood, Point Blank, The Trip, Wait Until Dark, Martin Scorsese's first feature, Who's That Knocking at My Door. Very interesting year. And then 
they sort of, I guess, quote unquote, reset a little bit the next year because they give Oliver best picture, right? Mm-hmm. And then 69 would be Midnight Cowboy. And then that basically just blows the doors off, right? Yeah. For the new, you know, the new Hollywood or whatever you want to call it. Uh, yeah. I think it talks just about how like slow production can be that everybody was ready for 1967 to kickstart the new American cinema. But it was like, well, we need an, an extra year just to kind of get things rolling. <laughs> and then now we can give the best picture to a rated X movie and easy writers out that year and stuff like that. I do find it interesting a little bit that Poitier was not even nominated for best actor. Obviously the award went to Steiger, but then you look at the rest of the (laughs) list. It's pretty impressive. Warren Beatty, Dustin Hoffman, Paul Newman, Spencer Tracy. That's a, that's a tough, tough field to crack. Although watching this movie and then seeing this list afterwards, I was surprised that Poitier was not on there, especially given how iconic this is, but maybe his nominations kind of got split between his two movies i mean do you have any insight to that ben i don't but that's i mean that's such an interesting thing um golden globe nominated for at least in the heat of the night right right right. there's this issue of like spencer tracy's nomination being posthumous that automatically fills one of the slots even in terms of like splitting between rod steiger and Sidney poitier one could make the argument that steiger's role is better than poitier because poitier is just playing a a a deeper role than the roles that he had previously played and won for just four years earlier steiger's pretty tremendous in this movie i I gotta be honest he's he's ridiculously good yeah i I forget how good he is every time i watch it because i'm 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 all ready to watch poitier just nail some people again and then steiger just comes out of nowhere it's got to be the greatest the greatest on-screen gum chewing ever right he does so much not talking in this movie that's so fucking good the whole time it's the way he looks and the way he ambles around and just like yeah hands in pockets and sits it's, it's fantastic apocryphally apparently went through 263 packs of gum over the course of the production which apparently is something that he fought jewison on originally that he he thought it'd be ridiculous to be chewing gum and then as soon as he kind of like dialed into that mannerism apparently he was just completely on board and yeah his gum chewing especially in that first scene when they find the dead body i think it's just tremendous just one more academy awards note it's pretty appalling that ray charles song didn't get nominated for best original song right unless that was not an original song somehow i can't imagine it was i love that song and i love quincy jones's score it's it's just groovy i was wondering i wanted to get you guys' opinion like is the score so kind of like jovial and upbeat to temper how dark some of the themes are to kind of like give i mean the movie is obviously very critical of the south for Mm -hmm. good reason is the attitude of the music meant to say hey not everything coming out of the south is bad (laughs) i was trying to figure out like it's it's a little bit in terms of tone it's a little bit removed from what's going on on screen don't get me wrong i really like it and i think it works but it's a it's a choice i think right like it's a big swing on Quincy Jones's part. I don't know. If this was like a Trent Reznor score, I think this would be a whole different movie, right? <laughs> like it'd be dark and foreboding. You wouldn't you wouldn't want that. Yeah, I think it might be just a little foil to the subject matter. But I I, I do love the music and I, I, lo- I love the score. So I I don't know. I, I think it works, but I, I know what you're saying. I think I think it would be a much different, darker, maybe less pleasant movie if it was a darker score. I, I think it's interesting to note the scene in which we have about four or five white guys surround Poitier and they're about to kill him it looks like or at least just mar him and there's no score I I had never noticed that until my revisiting of it for the podcast and so I do think that the score is brilliant but I also think that because I I believe that this movie was also nominated for best sound effects I think it won actually Uh, yeah maybe it won for sound mixing yeah that's right and so I I think it's in terms of that where the score might be 
a tad dated watching it now. It's a great score, but in terms of how it relates. But I also think that they had a very good understanding of how to build that tension without it. Because this is also at the time where The Graduate is using Simon and Garfunkel. And I do think that the score is great, but I also think it's brilliant how they utilize silence when Poitier is building. I guess suspense. I mean, you don't know if he's going to hurt or whatnot. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think there's even a couple of quote-unquote original songs that are played on the jukebox. And I was reading that those were actually written for like Quincy Jones like wrote those for the film in like an afternoon or something right because they didn't it was relatively modestly budgeted production so they didn't have they they couldn't afford the rights to anything so they're just like well we'll just write a couple ourselves like there's that really bad song where where Ralph (laughs) Ralph is like dancing around the diner right it's just it sounds yeah it sounds like yeah it sounds like it was written in an afternoon Uh, yeah you talk you talk about the budget and it's like not only did it have to be shot above the Mason Dixon line but it also had to make enough money that it didn't have to play below the Mason Dixon line like that was also in the contract as well that makes sense that it was like hey like if they wanted it to play they obviously could sell it to the theaters but in contract stipulations it was not only can we not shoot down there but this movie can't play down there either because it was going to be so anti-south but also really pro-black in ways that movies hadn't been thus far Ultimately, is that how it was sort of taken in by the South, or was it is was it more embraced than they had anticipated? Like, how did that all end up playing out? I'm not sure how it ended up playing out. I mean, obviously, it played well enough across the country that the Academy Award went to in the heat of the night. But I'm not I'm I'm not sure the actual specifics of whether or not it played in the South or whether or not um, the reception in the South was, was positive, but that's something to obviously go and revisit. Yeah. I mean, one of the things in this movie's favor is it's, it is like a prime example of of show don't tell. It's not very preachy at all. The characters do the work by just being themselves. You know, there's no big speeches on racism or anything like that. And so I would imagine it probably would maybe play a little better than they had anticipated, but I, It'd be interesting to see some some reviews and some audience reactions from, from that period of time. Which sort of brings me to another question for you guys. W- was it inevitable that this kind of movie was going to happen and open the door for, for these kind of African-American characters and this type of setting and this type of plot? Or did this movie sort of really rip the Band-Aid off and, and accelerate the acceptance of, of Mr. Tibbs type characters and, and these sort of roles for, for black actors? I mean, I don't. I don't think I'm uh, educated enough to be able to speak about that particular period in American history. But yeah, it does seem to me, just speculatively, that yeah, eventually something had to give, right? In terms of the civil rights movement, that was eventually going to spill over into various art forms. And I guess one could even make the argument that movies tend to be a little bit late catching up to these kinds of things, right? Like you said, if only for no other reason than production just takes a long time. I, I think the the kind of like anger, you know, the righteous indignation or whatever going on in this movie probably was being felt many years before it ended up on screen. You know, better late to the theater than never. In 1961, you have Poitier's A Raisin in the Sun, based on the play that he had done on stage in 1959. But in 1964, you have Michael Romer's uh, Nothing But a Man, starring Ivan Dixon, um, which is kind of the first time that we saw a made for silver screen script about African-Americans in their daily lives. That same year, you have William Klein starting to shoot Muhammad Ali, The Greatest, 
um, where Ali famously claims float like a butterfly, sting like a bee, who became a symbol for racial pride. That very next year, we have Selma footage start playing on screens, um, not only on the silver screen, but it's now entering your home. It almost seems inevitable that within the next year or two, we were going to get something on screen. Poitier tells the story that he actually forced the slap in the movie. The more research that scholars have done before me, they have noticed that in the original scripts, Siliphant and Jewison had written that into the script even before Poitier was really wrestling with that. Mm-hmm. Um, so it does make sense that... Even though it's not in the book, correct? Is that, is right, that a, yeah. right, right, right. So it does make sense that at the time, just two years after Selma, three years after Nothing But a Man and Muhammad Ali the Greatest, that even white Hollywood directors were like, should be about this time that we start letting America see black people not as we see them, but as they just are. People who get frustrated, people who are wrong with their accusations, and they are just as racially biased as we are. Poitier is accusing Endicott of murdering him, but that's only just because Endicott has just slapped him. And so I I think that at the time, this was really inevitable. I don't think that we could have gone any longer um, without something like In the Heat of the Night. Maybe it wasn't with Poitier. Maybe it wasn't. I mean, Belafonte wasn't making movies at this time. Maybe it was Ivan Dixon. I don't know what that looked like. um, And we can speculate all we want. But I think that it was pretty inevitable that it was going to be soon after the Selma footage that we were going to start getting stuff of African-Americans with some righteous indignation in them. And I think the book is written in 65, right? Mm -hmm. So, I mean, it's not like this. Yeah, I mean, this it's not like they waited a long time to adapt this thing. It definitely was timely. Have you guys ever seen The Butler, Lee Daniels' The Butler? No, I I did not see them. It's not a great movie, and uh, it's certainly not a caliber, you know, probably wouldn't need to necessarily be brought up in the same conversation as a a seminal film like this, but there is a sequence where uh, Forrest Whitaker's character goes to see, I think he goes to see Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, or his son goes to see it. Anyway, they end up around the dinner table, and the son is basically um, on the verge of joining the Black Panther Party, and Forrest Whitaker's titular character is working in the White House, and they're basically arguing over whether or not Poitier is, uh, you know, a white guy in a black guy's body. You know, they're arguing over, like, what he represents or if he actually is representative of the the African-American character in the 1960s or if he's basically just, I don't know, if he's just kind of towing the line. And if you look at something like uh, Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, you could, I guess, sort of make the argument that, yeah, there is something unrealistic perhaps about that character, whereas In the Heat of the Night obviously works over time to make sure there's like some level of authenticity to this, right? I mean, I just, I can't get over how fascinating it is that these two movies came out the same year because they're (laughs) opposite sides of this coin. Well, I think it's interesting too because um, I was just explaining this to someone the other day. They weren't really understanding Poitier's placement in the history of that time. So to contextualize it, I was saying, like I'm, I'm thinking about Get Out with the sunken place. It was at the time as if black people really did think that Poitier was a part of the sunken place, um, that he had been brainwashed to tell a story of my own family. I don't know if my mother will be upset about this, but her mother, my grandmother, was not allowed to see Sidney Poitier movies. Grew up in Texas, all those things. My grandmother was not allowed to see Raisin in the Sun, Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, because her, my great-grandparents, I guess, didn't want her to be a part of that. So it was like Poitier was really kind of stuck in the middle. So in the heat of the night allowed for him to break free of that that showed black people that, hey, I'm not in to use a modern phrase in the sunken place. But then also to show white people that he's not playing around and that he really was staking his 
you know, he, he really was staking his place in the ground. Yeah, and I mean, isn't that part of why, and maybe this is just speculation, I don't know if there's any confirmation on this, but isn't that part of why he kind of disappeared after this, even so, that, you know, he was getting it from both sides, right? Like, uh, he didn't want to be carrying that torch anymore, the way it was too much to bear in terms of getting the right roles or, or playing the right kind of characters for some of the, you know, African-American, you know, scholars of the day or, or, or whoever was sort of part of the backlash while also impressing white on the audiences or, or whatever. I mean, that seemed like that really weighed on him heavily and maybe was part of why he, he sort of hung it up a little bit. Yeah, so in 1968, I believe the Academy Awards that year were actually postponed because of Martin Luther King's assassination. Poitier had played a huge role in organizing the March on Washington with Harry Belafonte. So obviously this hit not only African-Americans across the country, you know, it hit them hard, but it also just really struck those close to the civil rights movement even harder. This is at the very beginning, uh, during MLK's funeral, Belafonte and Poitier have this massive falling out. They don't talk for five years. I mean, this is a very, very emotional time for Poitier. He's at the height of his career, winning awards. You know, he finally won the best picture, all these things, but also at the same time, his personal life is just crumbling. He got divorced in 65, right? Yes. Probably while making this. Well, maybe a little bit before they started production. Of this. Uh, it was during a patch of Patch of Blue okay. that he was divorced. But at the time, then he has his side chick, Diane Carroll, um, who also leaves him around this time. So it's it's a pretty it's a pretty low time for him personally. So a lot of times we see his career and we think like, oh, why would he leave at the peak of his career? And it's like, well, I mean, there's so many other factors that lead to him just feeling as though it's time to start making, like the next year he makes For Love of Ivy, and then two years later in 70 he makes uh, the sequel to In the Heat of the Night called They Call Me Mr. Tibbs. Um, and so, Yeah, have you seen They Call Me Mr. Tibbs and the Association? I presume you probably have. And uh, so I haven't seen the organization, oh, the but organization, I have seen They Call Me Mr. Tibbs, and it's pretty bad it's interesting <laughs> um it's like he's moved now to san francisco yeah. like i mean they really have kind of flipped what a sydney character looks like in the terms of like he's having affairs with his wife on screen like like just different things like that um feels very much like a 1970s pre-black exploitation movie I believe it's the next year that we get sweet sweet back's badass song which is the official kickoff but um Poitier was obviously dabbling in overt sexuality on screen, a more heightened African American violence on screen. So the sequels are much more overtly in the black exploitation realm. Absolutely. Okay. And then what about the T V show? Do you know how that came it, it happened twenty years later? I think it started in nineteen eighty eight. Oh. With Carol O'Connor. Um, I'm not sure who played the Tibbs role, actually. Yeah, I'm not too sure. I haven't done too much research on the TV show. I've heard it that it's not that good. I mean, nobody ever talks about it. I, I, I mean, amazingly, it ran for almost a decade um, on two different networks I, I saw. It's crazy that it came 20 years later when it obviously, I mean, obviously race issues never go out of style, but um, but it is. it does seem like a weird movie to adapt into a television series two decades after it you know, was released. But I mean, I mean, I remember it in my childhood. I like, I remember the theme song. I remember it coming on CBS and Carol, <laughs> this would have been Carol O'Connor's follow-up to um, All in the Family. Carl Weathers was in it. Do you know that? Yeah, I did read that. Yeah, <laughs> odd, right? I don't think he played Tibbs, but I know no, he was no. on the show for yeah, a while. He's on, he on the show. <laughs> it, it makes sense as a procedural, I guess. You know, just buddy cop sort of situation. I mean, I'm sure they had to jump through hoops to explain how they get Tibbs back down to to Sparta uh, <laughs> and how, you know keeping him there. 
In the premiere episode, Virgil Tibbs has returned to his fictional home of Sparta for his mother's funeral. It is it is crazy though, Ben. Do you know have any insight into like set in Sparta, Mississippi, shot in Sparta, Illinois? Was that just so they didn't have to change any of the signs? Yeah, so that's how they chose Sparta, <laughs> Illinois. Okay, gotcha. Um and so what would happen is uh they kept ice chips in their mouth because they're shooting in Illinois in the fall and winter and so to make sure that you couldn't see because they're having to play like they're in the south in the summer so they kept ice chips in their mouth to make sure that you couldn't see their breath as they were shooting on screen um, but it really was I mean again they had no money so they're having to choose a town that they wouldn't have to change any of the signs. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. I mean, that's smart. That's, that's industrious. Smart. Can we talk a little bit about Norman Jewison for a second? Sure. I find Norman Jewison so fascinating. The Cincinnati kid in the heat of the night, Fiddler on the Roof and Jesus Christ Superstar in the 70s, Rollerball, and Justice for All, Moonstruck, The Hurricane, and then a movie called The Statement, which I think is the last film he made. He's still alive. He's 92 years old. Mm-hmm. Not Jewish. Interestingly enough, his name is Norman Jewison, not Jewish at all. He's a, he's a Canadian Protestant. He had this illustrious career, never won an Oscar, but won the uh, was given the Thalberg Award. And interestingly enough, in 1967, when uh, this movie came out, or I guess it would be 1968 when the Oscars took place, uh, they also gave the Thalberg Award to Alfred Hitchcock, who also famously never won an Oscar. I don't know. He's he's not a flashy filmmaker. He's not a sexy filmmaker. But he was always a filmmaker who was deeply concerned with um, social issues and political issues and continued that throughout his entire career. And apparently his inspiration for wanting to get involved in this film was uh, after... He was discharged from the Canadian Navy. He traveled in the American South extensively and was very disturbed by the social climate there at the time. In the, I guess this would have been in the f- late 40s, early 50s. So I don't know. I, I, think, I believe it's the only Jewish film that shows up on the list, but I just think he's had, he had such an interesting career. Should not go unnoticed for bringing out another famous director. Um, he had Hal Ashby under his wings for a while. Um, which is always interesting to point out that Ashby edited Cincinnati Kid, Russians Are Coming, um, and did a lot of Jewison's movies before he started directing Harold and Maude in 1970. Yeah, this is Ashby's only Oscar for editing this movie. Crazily. Two, two out of three of his Oscar nominations were for editing Jewison movies, and this is the only one he ever won. And man, 60s and 70s, he's a real workhorse. 14 movies directed from 1962 to 1979. Then he slowed down quite a bit. Uh, would you say this is his best movie? Jewison we're talking about? Yeah. I, I guess you kind of have to, right? I mean, I, I love The Cincinnati Kid, and honestly, I've got a soft spot for Fiddler on the Roof. I love Moonstruck. Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> By the time Fiddler on the Roof came out, I feel like that type of musical was our I mean obviously that that musical brings with it a lot of um, interesting social implications as well but I think you know it came out the same year as a French connection and um, a clockwork orange mm-hmm. so fiddler on the roof looks looks a little bit silly in comparison in terms of like where we were going but I still revisit that movie all the time it's one of my favorite musicals yeah I, I think you got to go with this as, as his best work but again there's nothing flashy about it it's such a workmanlike film it everything about it is so like I rewatched spotlight last night for some reason I don't know it was just on my mind and it was on Netflix and I was watching thinking to myself man this movie is pretty dry and I don't necessarily mean that as as an insult I mean it's kind of dry by by design mm-hmm. and I think that in the in the heat of the night is kind of like we're going to let the fireworks happen between these characters on screen we're not going to get flashy about this we're not going to get cute we're just going to kind of like address this in a very workmanlike very kind of serious and respectful manner. And and it seems to me that Jewison kind of just stays out of the way. But I don't mean to say that it to take anything away from his from his directorial approach. I think there is something sophisticated about it. 
Well, and I think I think that sort of naturalistic approach um, has really helped this movie uh, endure a bit. You know, I mean, something more stylized might not hold up as well. Which brings me to a question. I mean, how how well do you guys think that this movie holds up, uh, especially for a moderate audience right now? I was really excited to talk about this film, and I was really excited to get Ben on here and to potentially do one of our one of the longer AFI episodes. Uh, we've done because I feel like this movie is a bit of a hard sell for people, Mm -hmm. especially for younger viewers. It's not even that old of a movie, but I think it's the only, there's only a handful of movies on this AFI list that I've only seen once. And this was one of them. So watching it for this podcast was only the second time I'd ever seen it. And I think that it is, it has kind of like fallen into a little bit of obscurity, but I think that at the risk of delving into cliche, it is more relevant than ever. And I think it holds up pretty darn well. I mean, to say whether, I, I always struggle with, you know, are these is it too high? Is it too low? I think it definitely deserves to be on this list, and I think it is required viewing. I think it is Jewison's best movie. 75? I don't know. I feel like you, Oscar, you and I have been talking about this a lot lately, where we seem to be falling into this. Yeah, it deserves to be on the list. Mm, is it a little bit high? Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I don't. I don't know if I would consider this film to be ne- to necessarily call it a masterpiece so much as it is very, very historically, you know, culturally and historically significant. Yeah, I mean, I was thinking about <laughs> our discussions in that regard, like last week, and realizing that, well, mathematically, if we believe that there are other movies that deserve to be on the list, then everything's basically going to be a little too high, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Until we get to the movies that are our absolute favorites, uh, I think this movie absolutely deserves to be on the list. Uh, what I was struck by in this rewatch, I was expecting it to be, you know, a bit of a slog, honestly. And this movie goes down a whole hell of a lot smoother than I thought it would. And it clips right along and just the procedural nature of it makes it an, an easy watch. And and I'm with you, Matt. This movie has fallen into obscurity in some ways. It's not a movie that you hear people talking about or discussing uh, as much as they probably should. You know, I'm not sure exactly why that is, but it's, it's still good to see it. On, on this list and uh, I think 75 it's, it sounds about right I, I, I've got no no qualms with, with where it's placed one thing that happened last semester Matt and I were able to take a class with Jay Hoberman um, which was fantastic and we were talking I can't remember how Sydney got brought up but we were talking about him and I finished my point by saying oh well he's a household name so I probably won't talk about him in whatever essay and Hoberman said, don't be so sure. He's like a lot of people don't know who he is now. Like he's kind of fallen into obscurity. It's interesting that we have revisited this film now and that even I think The Atlantic did a piece when Get Out came out revisiting Poitier. So I'm glad that his career is not only on this podcast, but also just in general starting to get revisited and starting to be reworked. I know that there was just a book release called Poitier revisited especially I think it was like Poitier revisited specifically focusing on now that Obama has been president like what does that look like um I haven't been able to pick it up but 75 feels perfect for me I don't feel like 99 if it had replaced guess who's coming to dinner at 99 I think I would have been a little I, f- I would have felt cheated a little bit I feel like 75 is a really good place for it like we're saying we said at the beginning it's procedural it feels very if it's taken out of its context it is kind of a drier movie but in its context it's so important and it did a lot for its time and it did a lot for his career um, it did a lot for Jewison's career so I feel like with that in mind, I feel like 75 is probably a perfect, perfect place for it. I think that's a really good point. And uh, yeah, you've, you've convinced me 75 is is perfect symbolic placement for the film. And also kind of exciting that uh, we're 
25 films into this journey, Oscar. We're a quarter of the way through this uh, through this Congrats, challenge. Congrats, guys. Yeah. We're making <laughs> that first, a significant turning point. first turn around the around the post. What's the, I was trying to do a horse racing thing. What, what, what is that called? Or qu- quarter mile in? Who knows? Sure. Yeah. Pole position. Sure. Pole position. We don't know what that means. <laughs> uh, yeah. But we're, yeah, a quarter of the way through. That, that feels significant. And this is a significant movie to... Uh, to uh, usher us into the second quarter of AFI Top 100. What's uh, what's next, Matt? Silence of the Lambs. Silence of the Lambs. I'm uh, I'm quite excited about that one. I got a lot Grand to say slam, about baby. it. Grand slam, baby. Grand slam. Yeah, that's only happened three times, right? Yeah, <laughs> one flew the cuckoo's nest. It happened one night, and Silence of the Lambs. Yeah, we we just recently discussed Forrest Gump, and I feel the same way about Silence of the Lambs, and that I. You know, it's one of those movies I definitely watched a bunch in the 90s, and uh, I don't think I've seen it in a good 15, 20 years at this point, so I'm pretty excited to give that another go. It's a weird one, but it's it's like universally beloved. I don't think I've ever met anybody who has anything bad to say about Silence of the Lambs. It's crazy. Yeah, at, at worst, indifference. Yeah, exactly. Or maybe I just haven't seen it because it's too scary or something, but, uh, but yeah, nobody ever has a bad thing. to. I mean, and it came out. I'm getting ahead of myself. We can get into all this in the next episode. But it came out in, I think, February of 1991. So it was like it was, it was over, a, it was year. over a year old yep. by the time it won Best Picture, which is bonkers. Uh, it never happens anymore. But, Ben, do you have anything to plug? Do you have anything uh, <laughs> plugs, you'd like plugs, to say plugs. or any place you'd like to, you'd like to send us? Uh, um, I guess I will have a shameless plug-in. So um, to carry uh, my love of Poitiers even further, you can check out my uh, Criterion recommended disc piece um, I wrote for Film Stage, which should be out Tuesday. I don't know when this is going to be pub- when this is going to go up. Uh, tomorrow night. Tomorrow night. Okay, yeah. so it should already be up. So you can check it out um, at thefilmstage.com um, and just kind of read about what Raisin in the Sun means to me and what it means to and what it should mean um, in this day and age. Wonderful. Um, check that out. And, uh, you know, I feel like we never plug ourselves as we should, Oscar, I Do feel it. like uh, this is a good opportunity to say I almost never say send us an email at WLMpodcast at gmail.com or like us on Facebook at WLMpodcast. Um, is there any place else? I mean, you can obviously visit us at WeLikeMovies.com anytime to see you know articles or specials. We're, we're starting a whole bunch of new series here pretty soon. Mm-hmm. Um, anything else, Oscar? I feel like we should we should make more of an effort to try and sell ourselves, get, get our listenership up. And I think having somebody like Ben on this week is going mm-hmm. to. I'm hopeful we're going to get a, a lot of uh, new y'all are going to lose listeners. <laughs> I'm sorry about that. I, I, we should put you on an, under a pseudonym. I'm, I'm looking at this list right now. I better be invited back for my favorite movie, Annie Hall. 100. At, at 35. So I don't know how long it'll take y'all to get through the re- through 40 movies, but. <laughs> We'll call you in a couple of years when we get around to Annie Hall. But yes, you, we'll, we'll go ahead and, and uh, mark you down for that right now. Because I think we should try and uh, incorporate more guests as we work our way through this list. Uh, you know, because a lot of these films are very, you know, important, you know, to... It, it's fun to get people who have, like, an emotional and or professional investment in specific films. And that's exactly why you're here, because I think you've got both. Thanks for being with us, Ben. We yeah. appreciate it. Thank you. All right. Well, again, thanks, Ben. And uh, until next time, this has been We Like Movies, AFI Top 100 Countdown, number 75, In the Heat of the Night. Say goodbye, Matt. Goodbye, Matt. In the heat of the night Seems like a cold sweat creeping across my brow Yeah 
And it'll be all 